Welcome to another episode of the Synergy Autism Podcast. I'm really glad you're here. This is where I bring you an inside view of the autism community and how passionately we are all trying to better understand the experience of autism. My name is Barbara Avila, and I run Synergy Autism Center. I am an autism specialist who has been in the field of autism for over 30 years. And in the last episode, you were introduced to my friend, Blake Baxter. That was our first podcast together, and this this next podcast that you're about to hear is our second of many, and we dive into his diagnosis a little bit more. So if you're wondering if you are on spectrum or someone you love is autistic, this is sure to bring you some great insights into the diagnosis, and especially later in life diagnoses that some of you may have had or you're considering. So here goes. Synergy Podcast. Blake Baxter, welcome back to the Synergy Autism Podcast. I am, as always, so happy to have you here. And I'm sure that our listeners, along with myself, just really appreciate your willingness to share your experiences with autism, as well as the advocacy that you're choosing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we we already shared one podcast where you shared a little bit about your autism diagnosis, but I'm hoping in this podcast, we can go a little bit deeper on that. So our listeners have a good sense of who you are. So yes. I'm going to ask that great big question. Blake Baxter, who are you? <laughs> good question. Yeah. Something I'm trying to figure out <laughs> over time myself. Um, thank you again for, for having me here today. I, it, it, this is great. Um, so who am I? I, well, I'm 56 years old, uh, and I'm part of what is, I think being referred to as the lost generation of autistic adults. I, I haven't heard that said that way. You know, I have to you look never into heard that. that? Yeah. Yeah I, 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 yeah. I heard it somewhere. I, <laughs> I'm going to have to check it out. And I received a uh, diagnosis in in my 50s. And one thing that occurred after receiving the diagnosis is I experienced a a flood of memories that went on for months. Wow. Only started to spread out kind of over time. I'm still having them. It's been a few years now. And, but initially they were, it was happening all the time Uh, throughout the day. I was just being kind of overwhelmed almost by by memories of things that I remembered and memories of things that I hadn't remembered. And in each case, while the memory, if it was a difficult experience or the, the emotions attached to the memory didn't really change, but the the confusion, the notion that I that that I didn't understand what had happened ha- had been lifted. And the the more I read about neurodivergence, in general and autism specifically. And the more I learned, the more that confusion at the time made sense. And the more that it was now gone. Mm, That is so encouraging to others who may be wondering whether they should get the diagnosis. I think it's really important. Even if you self-diagnose, if you start learning about it, and it applies and it's meaningful and it's useful and well, you know, makes your life better. Mm. Then, then it's good to have. Uh, 
I saw a lecture, Simon Baron Cohen, somebody asked about, you know, what about diagnosis for people who are, you know, doing, doing fine in life, right? The, this, the so-called so lost generation of people. And he yeah. said, well, if you, if you don't really need the support and the services, then, then maybe you don't need the diagnosis. And I thought about that and I said, I'm not sure that I agree, right? Because there are other aspects of life where maybe you don't need specific support or services, but other aspects of your life that might be challenging and that you've never been able to figure out. And the diagnosis puts a, a, a totally different understanding uh, 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 you know, available for you to, to kind of not only know and reinterpret your past, but to understand, you know, how to be in the present Absolutely. in your life. So wow. it's been really important to me. And, and so, as you know, I, as you mentioned, I, I, I continued my, my advocacy around this. I, I volunteer for the Inland Empire Autism Society. I'm on the board of advisors, which is a group of autistic adults who, um, you know, kind of provide some guidance and input to the board of directors and other parts of the organization. I um, am um, have disclosed at work to to a number of people I work with the, my diagnosis, and and I found that to be extremely useful as well. Unfortunately, I work for a company that that has a very strong um, diversity inclusion program. That's fantastic. And, and yeah, I work I work in technology is another part of who I am. Um, I graduated in 1989 with a degree in fine art and pretty quickly needed employment <laughs> to <laughs> continue eating and being housed. So I um, did find my way into a, a job essentially doing, you know, unskilled labor for a software company and was fortunate enough to have people who were willing to take time to show me how computers work, for example. Remember, this is 1989. So so the, the the Silicon Valley revolution is really just starting to take hold. There are not enough people. Um, yeah, yeah. For a lot of positions. I remember that. Out. You're dating us, Blake. I'm I'm dating. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the day, yeah. I so my, my you know one of my first jobs was putting labels on floppy disks, three and a half inch floppy disks. So, you know, it gives you an idea of how long we're we're going back. Yeah. yeah. The way software was delivered to people before the internet could handle it. Um <laughs> You know, there was AOL and, you know, oh, nobody yeah. was persistently connected to the internet. You would connect over a modem, download your email and disconnect. So, um, so that's turned into a whole career. And I work as a, as a technology strategist today for one of the large software companies. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been in the business, you know, now about 30 years. Um, I've continued making art and and I'm fortunate enough to to have a studio where I can can make the art that I want to make, and and occasionally I get to have a show. And I've had um, I've designed um, murals that have been executed overseas in Australia. I had a a work of art taken into the permanent collection at the Palm Springs Art Museum. And so, even though I've maintained a, a career in technology all these years, I've also been able to continue making art. And um, I also make music. I, I play in a couple of bands and we occasionally gig. With your um, permission, Blake, I'd love to be able to post some of your art and maybe even some of your music. Sure. Listeners to check out. I mean, I'm in kind of a post-punk performance project that 
I don't know if you want to host them. <laughs> we'll see, but yes. <laughs> I am sure they are, we'll have they some are listeners sure. who would love it. Yeah. And I, I think what, you know, really important in my story is I've, I've, my, my wife and I have been together for 25 years. Um, we're a mixed neurotype couple and the diagnosis has been um, incredible from that perspective as well, because um, it's, it's, it's really helped me to understand how, I think both of us, um, how in the past, certain challenging conversations, we've, we felt like we've really missed each other. Like we're, we're not, we're not on the same wavelength and we both come away confused because each of us thought each of us had, you know, I say completely different expectations for what would occur in any kind of given conversation or situation and, and, um, coming away kind of confused as to what happened and right. How something that might seem like a fairly innocuous or easy conversation to have would turn into something, you know, really difficult. Mm. And we've taken um, kind of some of these lessons and, and, and applied them. And, and again, the same way my memories are less confusing today and a lot of them make more sense, same thing's happening in, in my, my relationship. Wow. Uh, it's been extremely helpful as well. So Blake Baxter is an artist, a musician in a tech industry, married, a husband. Anything else that you want to share about before we head into kind of how you went about, you know, discovering that you might want to have a diagnosis? Um. I should, I, you know, I should probably mention that I've been playing ultimate frisbee for oh yeah over yeah. thirty years. I played, you know, on the college team. I I played with the masters team in my thirties. We we traveled around. I you know it was a big commitment on my part. Um, and uh, you know, went to nationals, uh, you know, six times in in that division. Uh, that's been a big part of my life as well. Um, I'm you wondering, know, do do you think that all listeners will know what ultimate frisbee is? Well, they should. <laughs> <laughs> Do you mind describing it? It's a team field sport, seven on seven. Um, you you can look up the uh, Ultimate Frisbee Association, and and uh, you know see a little bit of uh, professional frisbee there, and um, or USA Ultimate if you want to check out the club scene. Yeah. Cool. But it's yeah. you know it's a great sport, and I love playing it, and it's been an important part of my life as well. All right. Well, thank you for that. So are you willing to go into kind of what led up to your diagnosis? Sure. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, there were a number of things and I'd suspected um, over the years that this was potentially something that was affecting me. It goes back, I don't know, the notion probably goes back 15 years or more that um, what I might be dealing with is some type of neurodivergence. I think back then I was kind of focused on the notion of Asperger's, which is, you know, retired. But a lot of people still um, diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I think if you received an Asperger's diagnosis and you want to keep that diagnosis, that's perfectly valid. And that's what people should do. Yeah. It's part of their identity. And I don't, um, we can get into this in another part of the conversation. I don't, yeah. don't agree with the canceling of Hans Asperger. And um, I, I think it's anti-science and I think it's a problem, but, mm. 
Yeah. We can get into that in another one. We, we can get in another one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we have lots of podcast topics. Yeah, there's lots. Of <laughs> um, so there was that. Um, but I think the kind of the 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 challenges that that my wife and I were experiencing over the years kind of um, came much more into focus and became more of an I think of an of an issue for both of us during COVID when we were under lockdown together for, mm. for a while and not spending as much time with other people. Yeah. And it, yeah, it became, I, well, I just, it became a crisis for us mm. to be perfectly honest. And it's one we are with the help of the diagnosis still climbing out of. Um, we're in a much better place today, but um, that was a big part of me saying, you know what, I'm going to go out and figure out if this is something we're dealing with. And so that we can, right, we can address it head on if that is in fact the case. It um, sounds and, like, I don't mean to interrupt yeah. you, but it sounds like prior to that, though, you were already reading about neurodiversity or autism and wondering, is that true? I, w- I was, I was reading a bit about, yeah, about Asperger's and, uh-huh. um, but, but look, you know, and, you know, in hindsight, you know, looking back over the years, I've had other diagnoses I've had. You know, major depressive disorder, um, things like that, and um, you know, extreme anxiety, uh, variety of things that all come into much better focus now. Mm. I understand that. Look at what was happening was I was expending a tremendous amount of energy, engaged in a uh, in a in a in a process that I didn't fully understand, mm-hmm. which was in order to survive and in fact prosper in the world um i had to take on personas you know this this concept of masking but i think it's deeper than that i I think it's camouflaging right masking is one type right um but i had to take on a series of personas and and um while i was fairly good at it it's 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 detrimental to the soul it's it's especially if you don't know you're doing it wow so almost like acting stepping into a role Right, without the knowledge that, that without the knowledge that you're doing so or why. Wow. Right. Um yeah. right, this sort of vague sense of discomfort, but not being entirely sure what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my 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 creative self, the the artist and the musician, would always say, Well, I'm not like all these people I work with because I'm creative, I'm an artist, or I'm this or I'm that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people in who have jobs <laughs> do other things on the side that are creative and you know interesting and and that they don't share with the people they work with or if they did they might not understand and so they they may maintain these kind of separate parts of themselves but um that in the end wasn't the issue for me right it it was the neurodivergence and being just in social situations, whether that's one on like a one-to-one conversation or you know, a one-to-many conversation where I'm missing a lot of what's going on and other people are missing a lot of what I'm trying to communicate because my communication, not style, but even behavior um, didn't meet what others might expect. So how did, how did you, how did you figure that out? I've always been curious, like, because, you know, the, 
a lot of people will say, and it's actually in the diagnosis, that autistic individuals can't read nonverbal communication. So how did you, do you feel like that's true, I guess is one part. And then the other part is, how did you realize that there was that miscommunication? Would it be just the fallout later or during? Yeah, well, so the the, the first question you're asking, I think is a, is a big question, mm -hmm. right? I don't, it's a, in a way, it's a question of information. I think autistic people ignore a lot of information that comes across to them because they don't think it's useful. Hmm. Where in uh, similar neurotypes, um, they consider that information extremely useful. And so I think it's this theory of mind, right? That, right. that um, autistic people aren't reading the room, so to speak. And right. I, I think they are, but they're not, they're, 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 they're we all, we we all don't take in everything, right? right. That our perception is is so being a different filtering system. Different filtering systems. Totally different filtering systems. Mm -hmm. I I believe today that seventy to eighty percent of all the communication that takes place in business meetings is really not is kind of filler, you know, and <laughs> that and that's it's, it's frustrating to me. And so, um, in all of my roles, and so let me go back a little bit. Yeah. First of all, working in tech, you come across a lot of neurodivergent people. Sure. The um, the notion that the autism rate in California is higher than the rest of the country. I mean, one of the explanations that people have given is that the tech industry attracted neurodivergent people, whether they knew it or not. And they settled in in you know, California and had families, had neurodivergent children. And so that is one explanation for the for the rate, the rate difference. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, a lot of these big companies, you know, um, go out of their way to help neurodivergent people find jobs at their company. There are neurodivergent hiring programs in tech because they recognize that people who think differently, and by that, I mean something very specifically, they're not they, they're very literal. Um, they might be pattern thinkers. Um, they might be better at solving technical problems. They might be better at writing code. Um, the the more notion efficient. Of, more efficient. More <laughs> efficient. Less ability, of that filler you're talking about. <laughs> right. The ability to engage hyper focus um, can be useful in, uh, in the tech industry. So probably not um, not entirely just a question of the time that I was grew up in and needed to find a job, right? The, the, the late eighties, but also partially due to, you know, where I fit in and in, in tech. Now that said, um, in most of my roles, whether I left or was let go, which is I've been caught in layoffs, rounds of layoffs twice where I've been part of um, like a department in a company where the entire department was eliminated. Um, but regardless, um, I see I see the the conflict between neurotypes as, as having affected um, my ability to stay in certain jobs. That that's happened to me in the past, and and I see that now. I've been in difficult business meetings where I've said something which I thought was absolutely the right thing to say, and and other people had very different ideas about whether I was saying the right thing or not. And in fact, was, I think, let go from a job once because I said something in a meeting where an executive really 
I felt it was the wrong thing to say. And then mm-hmm. my my career at that at that particular company was was limited. Um, I uh, so I, I can get into a lot, you know, kind of a lot of these other things too. But um, sounds like it was a lot of those different collections of moments, yeah, and scenarios that led you to then fast forward to the pandemic and your home with yeah. life and you're struggling so, with communication as many of us were during the pandemic, but you have this scenario where you have different neurotypes. Right. Right. And I mean, one, one thing that seemed became obvious really quick was the lack of interaction with other people and the, the inability to go out um, was for me in a lot of ways, a relief. Um, kind of. I've heard that from a lot of people, but I also heard from a lot of people, autistic individuals, who say that it actually was hard because then their partner or their family was now home more often, where they weren't having as much time alone. Well, that was so, part of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was part of it. And um, you know, my wife and I both will occasionally travel for work. Um, in the years leading up to the the pandemic, she was she was traveling once or twice a month. Um, visiting clients. And so we did have the, that space as well. And when that space went away and we're in each other's company, you know, pretty much hundred percent of the time without any other type of buffering in forms of engagement with other people. For either of you. For either of us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then not understanding why. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we're not fully understanding why. Right. The, but the and the the diagnosis filled in a lot, a lot of information for us there. So did you do um, some online self uh, screenings kind of stuff? I did. I did. Um, initially, again, you know, a while ago, 15, 20 years ago, I did. And these were online tests for Asperger's. And I scored very high in pretty much all of those. Mm-hmm. And then before, more recently, before going for an official diagnosis, um, did that again. You the know, what again? I did that. I did that again. I did. Oh, you did that again. again. And ironically, one of those tests is called the empathy quotient, which is just. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. So. Um, That's but- Simon Brown Cohen, right? Who created that one? The empathy quotient. I think, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, it was on this site that that is designed to help people self-diagnose, and then they'll they'll they will give you an official diagnosis. Um, you know, and they do it all over the internet, but with psychologists. And um, I, that's not the site I used. I, I went to a a person, a neuropsychologist, and did the evaluation. It was about eight hours. Um, wow, that's a long time. Live. Well, I'm adding in the the two hours I spent on the multiphasic personality. You know, they sent me oh. home. Yeah, um, which has you know 260 questions or something. Mm-hmm. So, but I probably spent six hours in the office. So that during COVID, or it must have been after then. It was right. It was right. It was after. Yeah. Right after. Right okay. after. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your journey up that led up to the diagnosis. Is there anything else that you want to share in regards to that? I don't think so. 
Is there something I love, I love how you talk <laughs> about that flood. Just what? As I said, is there something you were thinking of? I can't remember. No, no, no. I just, I wanted to make sure that we, mm. I didn't cut you off. I, um, I'm just no, so intrigued. Yeah. I think that's, that's most of it. Yeah. I'm really intrigued with the fact that after you received the diagnosis, <laughs> you started to have that flood of memories that then, is it fair to say just made more sense, even though they were still emotional and hard, they made more sense for you. And that was a relief in its yes. own right. Yes. Wow. I could, I could understand them better. Now there was a, a lifting of confusion. Um, and as I was seeing them in, in, in with a totally different knowledge that, uh, that made sense. Right. Would you be willing to share one of those and how it changed the memory? Well, I think I, I think I think I shared on our last conversation about the ball. Yes, I think you did. You're right. Cat, right. Yeah. Um so I, I guess we won't do that one again. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> um well I, I think I you know I mentioned this business meeting. This one that yeah. stands out in my mind. This was a a meeting um with executives and a, and a customer of mine. It was a large group of people. It was probably 20 people in the room. We spent days preparing for it. Uh, there were documents that had to be filled out describing the customer, what they did, you know, what everybody who in the, in the room, what their roles were. And that was to prepare the executives who were coming in, who had to do a lot of these meetings over, over time um, so that they could be, you know, present and, and feel relevant. And, and I thought the meeting went really, really well. And, <laughs> and uh, after the meeting was over and the customer left, the executives left for a few minutes and someone else in management said, let's, let's stay here. I think they won't want to talk to us for a debrief. And I said, yeah, we should talk, you know, what we do next. And um, the executives came back in the room. These are, these are, CXOs, right? Chief officers of various types at this company. And one of them sat down across the table from me and just, just laid into me. Right. Just, wow. just what, like, like, I can't believe that you said that, you know, we finally, the customer was upset and we finally got them to a point where everything was, was good again. And then you just blew it all up and you said the exact wrong. And he cursed at me, uh, exact wrong thing. And, you know, now I got to talk to these guys about how we're going to recover and get out of here. And he kicked me out of the room. Wow. And, yeah. And, and I was like, I, I was like, what? I mean, I was, I was devastated. And I, and I, I, after all that preparation and I went into another room with the person I worked for, my, my direct manager. And I said, I, I can't believe that just happened after all that preparation. He wasn't expecting any of that. And he said, yeah, why don't you take a break, you know, take a walk, come back. You know, he could tell I was upset. Um, and I was, I was, I was, I was angry. I was angry because I thought he was, first of all, because I thought he was wrong. I thought I was right. I still uh -huh. think, I still think I was right. Uh -huh. And, um, you probably were, but, okay, <laughs> but there was a level of confusion about what happened that, 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 that prevented me from accessing a more rational response, right. Or even a more useful response. To the incident, I ended up working there for about another six months, and then I got caught in a round of layoffs, and I wasn't surprised at all that I was part of that. Um, but it 
you know, that, that, that last six months there, I really didn't feel like I was engaged and I, you know, well, certainly not appreciated for your contribution. So right. in, in retrospect, was it something regarding like a sale that you took a different direction than like, I'm just, no, it was, it that. was, um, it was just, I was just trying to, to show that, uh, that, well, it's, it's hard. It's, 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 it, this is, this is, this is a challenge. So without kind of, without, well, without kind of exposing what this company oh, was. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. So yeah. who the customer was, I don't want to, but, um, but there was, there, that's okay. There's certainly, it was, well, a, it here's the well, moment. Here's, yeah. Well, here's go ahead. So I, I did talk to my, my customers people I talked to every day. Um, I saw them later and there was one of them who I, I, you know, we had built a lot of trust together and I said, you know, it was, it's tough. I didn't our, our, our management was a little upset about that meeting. They weren't happy with the direction it took. And the customer said, I thought the meeting was great. <laughs> I said, wow, how yeah. even more confusing. How even more confusing. So like, um, who, who's, whose perspective am I, am I not understanding here? Right. And, and how is that, how is that the case? And how is my perspective that led me to say and act in certain ways during that meeting, not being understood either. Which yeah. today I I can understand that, right? My goal, my goals for the meeting were entirely different than some other wow. people I worked with in the meeting, and I wasn't able to perceive that during the meeting, and I wasn't able to perceive at one point that um, they were trying desperately to to move away from a certain topic before. Um, before creating what what I would consider the appropriate level of confidence oh. with the customer in order to do that. And so I wasn't ready to move off the subject. And this is an interesting thing too, because you 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 see this. We've talked about this before. Um changing topics. Uh-huh. Right? Shifting from one thing to another. Often it is the case that that a neurodivergent person, or, or specifically an ASD person, um, doesn't feel like something's really been properly understood and discussed before other people are willing and wanting to move to move on in a conversation. And I often feel in conversations, not just in business, but everywhere, right, that people are kind of going around, they're not really settling on anything. It's more of a question of of creating um, certain emotional understandings between people and reinforcing like the, the, the cultural zeitgeist, right? The cultural mesh um, that oh, Ian Ford talks about in, in, in the book. Um, um, oh no, I can't remember, A Guide to Earthlings, I think it's called. Oh, okay. We'll we'll look it up. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, talks about this, this that, that there's a there's 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 a certain cultural mesh of these different parts of of society and culture, mm -hmm. and that mesh changes over time. And you see that in in like well, like there's a word of the year, right? Um, every year, right? Oh, sure. The dictionaries yeah. say this is the word of the year. Well, that wasn't the word of the year ten years ago. These things change. Our understanding of certain words change. Our understanding of certain concepts change. And the way that people continually update that, those connections 
um, is through conversation and interaction, and but it doesn't deal with detailed facts, right? It's just it's a reinforcement, and so and because it's a reinforcement, the same things and the same topics need to be iterated multiple times, over and over and over again, mm-hmm. and. I think to an autistic person, this is um, confusing and can be irritating. <laughs> sure, and just to uh, get back, I mean, the staying on topic. I do. I see that all the time, actually, with all my clients of you know level one, two, and three, whatever you want to say with that, with just wanting to stay with a topic until it's thoroughly thought out before shifting. And so often we do, we dance around subjects or we come back to them and things like that, which I can imagine would be irritating for sure. It can, yeah, yeah, it can be. And, and, and I think it also goes back to that, that notion of theory of mind, right. And there, there's a, there's an, a certain assumption that when you're having a, a casual conversation with a group of friends that, um, that there's 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 a certain type of communication and, and a certain certain level of detail given any p- particular topic that you that you go into and and but it's 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 contained in a certain way or there's an expectation that's that's that that is can be hard to access for yeah for an autistic person I think that's uh, a whole other topic for another podcast like going nice. into just like the different the the webs or the mesh I don't know yeah that's yeah so, fascinating so that that's a lot of what happened in that particular case, but, but also I've, I've had those experiences, um, you know, kind of throughout my life where I've come away from a conversation and been like, I thought I did that correctly. Or, you know, I thought I was helping and turns out, you know, other people had a different opinion and yeah. that was hard for me to understand or right. Yeah. Access their thinking. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, I think a, a really good example. I think another thing that 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 I think about is yeah, I've 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 maintained kind of an interest in a lot of different a lot of different things. I, I you know technology, art, music, sports. Um and whenever I and this goes back to being very, very, very young, whenever I get involved in 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 a uh, some type of activity like that. Um, I feel like it's extremely important to be very good at it. And that has driven me in some cases to good things, but at other times it's driven me to maybe not so good things (laughs) Mm -hmm. like, like burnout. And in fact, I think a great example is, um, uh, you know, when you met me, I was, I was the, I was the RA. Yeah. Right, resident I was like advisor for the, I the dorm I was in. Yeah, resident advisor in the, at the dorm, and 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 I think when I shared my diagnosis with you initially a few years ago, you said, "Wait, so that whole RA thing was was a mask?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, pretty good, right?" But you also remember the following year what happened to me. Mm. Right. Like the, the, the deep level of depression and distress I fell into, I, I really couldn't maintain it. I maintained it for about seven months into the year. And then it started to really fall apart because I, again, I was taking on a very specific persona of like this kind of college dude. Right. 
and um with everything that that included whether it's you know the way i spoke the way i behaved the clothes i wore the way you know the way i cut my hair less relevant today and <laughs> but it wasn't a full integration of myself it was a part of myself that i developed in a way that was healthy for me in some ways and and and, and provided me a chance to grow but not not very healthy for me in other ways hmm. and not having the ability to discern between those 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 two things um well, you know those of, two those two influences right it's just interesting with this podcast i started out with who is black blake baxter and um we're kind of full circle because during that time you, you probably didn't know who the heck you were and you were trying on these different yeah sonas and trying to figure it out and it wasn't fitting yeah. for you yeah, and, and people who knew me at the time, you 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 won't remember this guy. You didn't know me yet, but the the year, my first two years, um, I was like a huge stoner. I had mm. long, long, long hair. I, you know, I, uh, um, you know, and that was, and I, and, you know, different friends, um, and that was a different persona, right, of being this kind of creative, um, crazy. <laughs> right. Well, pretty appropriate for UC Santa Cruz at the time, though, too. Well, and one, you know, and I transferred from UCLA. So my first year I spent at UCLA. Oh, that's right. And I got in a lot of trouble for having cannabis in the dorm, which at college. And um, <laughs> and they didn't have a, an ultimate frisbee team. And so I tra I visited Santa Cruz that summer uh, for a couple of days. And I was like, this is the place for me. Right. So I transferred to Santa Cruz, um, which was a good, a good move in a lot of ways, and in some ways, maybe not a great move. Um but it it and then I that's that's who I was there during my first year at Santa Cruz. But then again, had a crisis um, where um, I felt like my my personality um, didn't exist, right? Like where every everything fell apart for me, and so um, I started to take started to embrace some different aspects of my of my character right and and of my personality and went in a different direction and became this this other person <laughs> by yeah. the time you you had met me right and i've gone back and forth in that way which is exhausting um throughout my life and, and as i and as i as i as i got older and grew up i learned that i could maybe maintain those different types of personalities all at the same time but they didn't mix i never Right, I never mix those things up, and I'm in a place today where I can start to integrate as a whole all these different things, right, in in a, in, a, in a new way. Where because I can, I can recognize what's real, right, a real interest to me, uh, a talent, um, wow. and recognize. And also recognize that I there are some things that I can do just purely out of the, for the enjoyment of them, and not because I have to be great at it. And so I'm confronting imposter syndrome, which has been a huge part of my life. And going back to Santa Cruz for a second, there was a um, a photograph of so it was my second year there, and there was a big party. And there's this photograph of me and some friends, and there's maybe like twenty people, twenty or twenty five people in the photograph. 
And my friend came up and said, Hey, I want you to check this out. I took a picture of the party and I looked at it and I said, wow, who let that guy in? And I was pointing at myself. <laughs> I was joking. I knew it was me, yeah. but, but I looked like I was faking uh, to me. I'm looking at the picture and I'm like, I'm an imposter. I don't belong in this photograph with these people in this scene. And my friend who knew me pretty well looked at me and said, what do you, what do you mean? And I said, I'm an imposter. And she said, no, you're not. I don't know what you're talking about. Wow. So we do need to wind up, even though I could talk forever oh. with you and we will come back to another podcast, but I want to end with the, you know, again, full circle. What made yeah. you reach out to me again? Just since you're, we're, we're here and talking on this energy autism podcast, what made you reach out to me? Well, I, I mean, I knew that you were, had become an autism researcher and, and, and a therapist and, um, and, and at, remember I, after college, I, I remember, um, you, you showed me once like the, the, the building you, you were, you were working on your master's. Oh, and and yeah. you walked me through and gave me a tour of like the observation room where you watched children behaving and playing. I don't know what else. And, and yeah. uh, you know, and it, it always stuck with me. Like, here's something that, that really, you know, that you were really into and that you were planning your, your future around. And, and, and I, at the time I remember thinking, I don't have anything like this, right. I'm not, I'm not disinvolved in anything. <laughs> anymore and and um i remembered that and then i also knew that you had done that and i think your book came out right around the same time as uh, my diagnosis yeah it would have yeah it came out right around right the same time covid yeah and so i started reading and i said you know i'm gonna i'm gonna email barbara and, and let her let her know what i found out about myself hmm. and, well yeah. i'm grateful that we reconnected so thank you for making too. that happen all right so um, Next time we will talk specifically about empathy, right? Yeah, yeah, we're gonna dive in. I, of course, I'm a little bit interested. Why does? Why don't we end on that? Like, why? Sure. Why has empathy been something that? I mean, you've piqued my interest more in it. I mean, it's always just been kind of a part of when you talk about autism, you talk about empathy, right? And I think that's part of what why you're so passionate about talking about it more. Right. Right. I so um, in the business I work in, and I and I've I've worked on uh, sales teams, um, you know, high functioning sales teams uh, delivering massive amounts of you know revenue to companies, and um, in recent years, I'd say in the last maybe five years or maybe a little bit more, um, the notion of empathy has become part of of the, the sales talk track, um, and sales training. And, uh, you know, and, and every time the word comes up, I, it, it always connected back for me to this kind of notion that one thing that autistic people lack is the ability to access empathy. And we talked, um, last podcast about the movie Blade Runner and the book, do androids, Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick, which, mm -hmm. you know, posits the, the uh, you know, or, you know, forwards the notion of what would happen if we developed a replicant that was totally indistinguishable from humans in every other way, except for the fact that they didn't have empathy or yeah. that human beings didn't think they had empathy. Ah, right. And the way that relates to that 
that whole notion for, for, for ASD people. And I'm hearing this word come up a lot in my business and in my profession. And so I, I, it, it had an emotional impact on me. And so I, I decided, well, I'm going to, I'm going to look into it a little bit and maybe try to flesh out what the word means and why we're using it so frequently nowadays. And that just, that, you know, I found a, 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 rich universe <laughs> of opinions and books um, simply on the notion of empathy, not only from a neurodivergent perspective. And and this, right. this book we'll talk about next, Against Empathy, um, by, which Paul I found, Bloom. by Paul Bloom, which I, I found absolutely fascinating. And yeah. um, I think it's an extremely important topic, uh, not only for for neurodivergent people, but for everybody. Agreed. And I look forward to talking more about it next time. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I look thank forward you. to next time. All right. Sounds good. Saturday.